You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 28th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. It's 2000 in Singapore, 1300 in Algiers. Midday here at Midori House in London and 7am in Lima. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Briefing starts now. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up on today's programme, the White House releases a final tranche, for now, of aid to Ukraine. Where does this all go next? Also ahead, a plan to relocate Hamas to Algeria. We'll hear the latest. Plus... It really helps with those conversations to talk about the Queen serving your wines because it is those endorsements long term that are going to make the difference. We'll find out how English sparkling wine is gaining recognition in international markets and we'll round up the year in art too. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. The latest tranche of US military aid to Ukraine has been released. Air defence, artillery, ammunition and anti-tank weapons are all to be sent to support Kyiv in its continuing battle against Russia's invasion. But this is the last batch of US aid earmarked for Ukraine for now, because any further help depends on the resolution of a domestic issue in the US Congress, strengthening its border controls with Mexico. Well, Jenny Mathers is a senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University in Wales. Uh, A very good afternoon to you, Jenny. Good afternoon. So I mentioned a few things that are in this latest package, but but what is in it exactly? It's quite sizable, isn't it? Um, Yes, it is. I mean, this is $250 million uh, worth of weapons, um, some of its equipment, uh, but quite a lot of it actually is is ammunition, is things that will enable the Ukrainians to use equipment that they've already received from the U.S. and other Western backers. Uh, So this will allow them to continue their efforts not only at their own defense, but also to try and hit the Russians behind the lines uh, for, for longer, as, for as long as possible, really. Um, and just explain to us how much Ukraine is dependent on this US aid, because as I mentioned a moment ago, this is the last tranche. That's right. Um, unless and until Congress decides to authorize more, uh, this is really the end of what uh, Biden can can authorize on his own authority from U.S. stocks. So I think you know this, we've been an incredible um, sense of, of international solidarity behind Ukraine, particularly from from Western countries, um, and and that has not really wavered. But the problem is the U.S. is by and large the greatest supplier in terms of just the sheer amount of weaponry that it can provide. Um, and it's taking this out of stocks. Uh, it's buying it from, from other um, you know, suppliers around the world. And it's able to ship things uh, to Ukraine really very quickly. Um, so you know, losing or even having a, a gap in the supply from its greatest supplier is going to be a huge problem for Ukraine in continuing this war effort. And looking further ahead, there's a poll by uh, CBS and YouGov in September saying that 39% of Republicans um, believe that the US should send weapons to Ukraine. I mean, that is now a little over a third of Republican Americans. Um, It's a drop in support there. And also we saw the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky going and doing, trying to work his magical charm on Congress and on Washington as a whole and not quite getting there. So are we looking at a more permanent change here? 
Well, I think certainly it's a change that's going to be with us during most of 2024 as we approach the elections in, in November. I think there's a couple of things happening. One is that Republicans in Congress have clearly decided that Ukraine is an issue that they can use to put an obvious distance between themselves and the Biden administration and the Democrats because Biden and the Democrats have been so solid in their support for Ukraine. You know, this is an area where they can really set themselves apart. But as part of that process of setting themselves apart, they've really pushed a lot of stories, uh, and I, I use the word stories, uh, you know, advisedly, uh, about the way that um, Ukraine has allegedly uh, sort of misappropriated funds that the U.S. has provided. There's uh, stories circulating which are totally fabricated about Zelensky and his wife spending fabulous amounts of money buying yachts and jewelry and things in the West. Um, and all of this um, is helping, I think, to send the signal not only among Congress people, but also to their you know, constituents um, that, you know, Ukraine is not a good investment. The money is being wasted. It's not being overseen properly. Um, and therefore, you know, the U.S. really should just stop doing this and, and focus its attention on other issues. In the meantime, we have Russia doing its absolute best to, to garner support from hugely significant global players. I and mean, we had uh, Russia and India having a meeting. The Russian uh, foreign minister and his Indian counterpart had a meeting in Moscow recently talking about the plans to jointly produce military equipment. So we have progress being made there. And the Moscow Times reported a, an hour ago or so saying that Vladimir Putin has promised um, Xi Jinping in China that his invasion of Ukraine was would last five years. Um, that was made in a, that statement was made in a, in, in a meeting earlier on this year, apparently. But the way that this is being interpreted is that saying it will last five years is a reassurance that Moscow will win. And as a result, we'll try to make sure that, you know, China's pro-Russia policy is maintained. Russia is getting help from very important players, isn't it? It is. And I think Putin has been very clever in, in many respects at maintaining and trying to strengthen relationships with major countries like China and India that are part of the global south, that are quite skeptical about uh, U.S. foreign policy in general um, and are more inclined to be um, supportive of Russia or sympathetic towards Russia and have longer lasting ties, both in terms of trade uh, and also in terms of politics and diplomacy. Finally, tell us a little bit more about the latest news about Alexei Navalny. Um, he disappeared for three weeks, taken on an utterly circuitous route from his prison east of Moscow to what is described as one of the most brutally harsh um, prisons up in up near near the Arctic. Um, mm -hmm. He has said to people, don't worry about him. Um, is he trying to make the best of something here? Yes, I mean, absolutely. This is Navalny's trademark, that he is uh, relentlessly upbeat, positive. You know, he sends out these kinds of, of very um, upbeat messages to his supporters as often as he can. Um, but really, it is a very grim place by all accounts. I mean, it's up above the Arctic Circle. Uh, the prison is, is known uh, as the polar wolf. Um, and not only because it is located in such a harsh uh, environment in terms of weather and, and so on, but also because some of the harshest um, prisoners uh, in Russia, some of those who are convicted of the most dire um, crimes, are sent to that prison. So it's, it's harsh and, and difficult 
in every possible way. And of course, he's been sent there not only to take him further away from his lawyers and his, his support pro, uh, networks, but also to um, provide this extra layer of punishment, putting him in with these really hardened criminals um, in the expectation that, of course, he's going to be uh, threatened, he's going to be roughed up, uh, he's going to have a very difficult time. How much of a relevant figure is he still in, in Russia? There is an enormous amount of interest in his welfare and and how he is surviving what is clearly a brutal punishment. Um, but are the Russians still able to follow him and indeed support him? Well, some do. I mean, this is always a difficult thing to, to judge now that, um, you know, there's so many restrictions on reporting in Russia and so many uh, rules around, uh, you know, what people can say without risking being arrested themselves. Um, but, but certainly among those who are skeptical about the war, who are critical of Putin, um, yes, Navalny continues to have a following. People continue to be interested in him. You know, a lot of the, the main opposition figures, though, are now outside Russia um, or they're in prison like Navalny himself. So I think it, it demonstrates that the treatment of, of Navalny by this regime demonstrates just how dangerous Putin continues to think that he is. You know, can, regardless of all of the very harsh measures that are being imposed on public, the public in Russia um, and his, you know, waning ability to influence them, Navalny is still obviously viewed by Putin and others as being exceptionally dangerous and someone who needs to be treated uh, very, very cautiously. Jenny Mathers, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Time now for a quick look at the day's other news headlines. Here's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Thanks, Emma. North Korea leader Kim Jong-un has ordered his country's military, munitions, industry and nuclear weapons sector to accelerate war preparations. The announcement took place after a key meeting on the country's policy directions for the new year. State media reported that the move is to counter so-called unprecedented confrontational moves by the US. An Israeli minister has warned that the country's military will act to remove Hezbollah from the border with Lebanon if attacks continue. Benny Gantz said that time for a diplomatic solution was running out. Security sources report that on Wednesday, Hezbollah launched its highest number of cross-border attacks in a day since the 8th of October. And former European Commission President Jacques Delors, a founding father of the European Union's historic single currency project, died yesterday at the age of 98. Delors, an ardent advocate of post-war European integration, served as president of the European Commission for three terms, longer than any other holder of the office, from January 1985 until the end of 1994. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Sophie. Now, while the Israelis warned that their military operation in Gaza could take months until it can wipe out Hamas, much of the rest of the world is trying to work out what the long-term prospects for the region and its players could be. One suggestion that has come from a Saudi Arabian think tank is a plan to transfer the leadership of the Palestinian resistance movement Hamas to the Algerian capital, Algiers. I'm joined in the studio by the journalist and broadcaster Nabila Ramdani. Good afternoon, Nabila. Thank you for coming into Monaco Radio. So could you just outline what is the plan? Well, I have to say that this is a very convoluted and rather unlikely peace plan for the Hamas-Israeli conflict. It's actually a plan that was hatched in uh, Saudi Arabia to transfer key Hamas leaders to Algiers, uh, the, the capital of Algeria. And the secret plan 
uh, was drafted following a discussion between Abdelaziz Al-Sagir, who is the head of a Saudi think tank, the Gulf Research Center, and Angrio, who is the director of the North African and Middle East uh, Department at the French uh, Foreign Ministry. The two of them met on November the 19th in Riyadh, the Saudi capital, and uh, followed a, a report uh, authored by uh, Al-Sagir. Now, as with many complex and highly secretive plans, it was evidently leaked to Le Monde, a newspaper in Paris. And I think it per- perhaps highlights that the instigators of the plan actually realize that it has no chance of success and uh, they want the world to know about it anyway. And But Le Monde suggests that The evacuation of Hamas leaders to Algeria would be helpful because Algeria has a good relationship with both Qatar and indeed Iran, who are which are the main supporters of the Hamas movement, and because of Algeria's security capabilities that would allow it to tightly control their activities. I actually think that having Hamas in Algeria would cause all kinds of security problems for Algeria and ones they would rather avoid. And that's why the Algerian ambassador to Paris, for example, remained uh, quite silent on, on the issue. But I think more generally, Algeria went through a savage colonial experience at the hands of the French for 132 years, right up until 1962. And there are legitimate comparisons with the Palestinian experience. So the empathy with the Palestinians is certainly there. It's difficult, though, because one wonders what exactly Hamas would do, because Hamas are one group's Palestinian resistance movement, but in the eyes of dozens of other countries. They are a terror group and Israel is doing its best to wipe it out. Yes, I think that the the plan suggests that the Hamas leadership, and it most likely refers to the leader of the Ezzedine uh, Al-Qassam Brigade, uh, leader Mohammed Diaf, which is who is the leader of the military uh, wing of Hamas and the political leader of the movement in the Gaza Strip, Yahya uh, Sinwar. And it's not a strategy that's quite novel, in fact. The idea echoes a historical incident in 1982 when Yasser Arafat, the head of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, and his Palestinian fighters were evacuated from the Lebanese capital, Beirut, which was then besieged by the Israeli army, and they were uh, sent to Athens uh, and eventually to Tunis in, in Tunisia under French naval escort. There's another aspect to the plan, and perhaps a more effective one, uh, in that the plan also calls for the deployment of an Arab peacekeeping force in Gaza under UN auspices and the establishment of what they call the Joint Transitional Council, including the main factions in Gaza, that is to say Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Fatah. And the council would be responsible for managing the enclave for a period of four years and for organizing uh, presidential and parliamentary elections. And I actually think all of this sounds quite sensible and would at least be a move in the right direction. And it would certainly be better than Israel continuing to kill thousands of of people while flattening the whole of Gaza and indeed uh, provocatively placing their flags all over the enclave as if they were prepared to occupy it again permanently, as they're currently doing uh, in the, in the, uh, illegally in the West Bank. What would be the long-term prospects for Hamas, though, in that, in that context, given the fact that Hamas would effectively be exiled to, to Algeria? But would they, from that, point, from that position, be able to regroup, um, 
their desire to fulfil their aims and to and to to make sure that you know to and but you know, to to do what they need to do, Th- their desire to create, you know, to make sure that the pa- the Palestinians are kept, you know, re- released from the Israeli um, sanctions and the Israeli control, that desire is not going to go away, though, is it? No, absolutely. I think that's why, I mean, Le Monde noted that it was a very unclear plan and it was also not clear whether the uh, Saudi authorities had approved of the plan or whether it was a purely personal initiative by the director of the that Gulf Research Center in, in, in Riyadh. And the document only stated, and I quote, it appears that the search for a Saudi-French consensus could contribute to the crystallization of a common vision acceptable to all parties and have an impact on the decision to the end of the war. So this is, dare I say, a, a waffle in effect. And I think... Um, where does this leave Algeria? Because it therefore it, it it further divides or it it creates division within the region, doesn't it? Well, I think you know one has to look at the broader picture in all this. I think Israel has made it abundantly clear that it wants to keep up the killing indefinitely and that there is no possibility of this resolving um, this situation. And dare I say, I think a permanent ceasefire is required. Uh, not a permanent war. Uh, And the best way to achieve this ceasefire is through a broader global effort to include the Western powers, including, uh, and dare I say, especially the United States of America. There is a strong argument that they need to stop mindlessly fueling death and destruction through pouring weapons and cash into the Israeli war machines. And I think mindsets are slowly changing. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, for example, has just said that the killing cannot go on. And even Joe Biden might slowly be waking up to what is happening. What about France's involvement in this one? You mentioned Emmanuel Macron there making that call for for what is happening in Gaza to, to cease, given the level of humanitarian catastrophe that's being created there. Uh, but in terms of the way that, that France now is goes and asks questions and goes and tries to get involved in places that other countries fear to tread, I mean, one thinks of the conversations that Macron had with um, Vladimir Putin before the invasion of, of Ukraine. The fact that France still wants to get involved in this part of the the world, you know, the Franco-Algerian relationship post-colonial is not healthy. It is, you know, it, it is inevitably going to have some areas of tension. How welcome is this going to be? I think... Uh, at this stage, any effort to bring an end to what is essentially a, a carnage, it has to be welcomed. And yes, France's position has been ambivalent. On the one hand, uh, Macron has showed uh, unconditional support for Israel. And on the other hand, he was the, uh, one of the first, if not the first, Western leader to call for a ceasefire uh, for the end of the killing of the elderly women and children. He came close to calling it a genocide, but didn't. Uh, But as always with Macron, you know, he wants to play a a key part in sorting out world affairs. We've seen how he went back and forth to have these endless talks with Putin uh, before the invasion of the Ukraine, but he failed miserably. And there I say this is another example of him not being terribly successful and... Uh, his attitude at home is also quite ambivalent uh, by uh, regularly banning pro-Palestinian marches, for example. He's also sending a contradictory message. Nabila Ramdani, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio.
welcome back to The Briefing, live on Monocle Radio with me, Emma Nelson. Now, let's look back at some of the biggest stories from the world of books and uh, art in 2023 with the curator and art critic, Francesca Gavin. She joins me in the studio. Very good afternoon to you, Francesca. Happy yep. Christmas. Thank you. You have been tasked with a pretty big job, which is... So what happened in art in 2023? I mean, quite a lot. So well, let's divide this up into quite a quite a few uh, few sections. We'll sort of have subheadings. But the fact that you said that quite a lot happened in art this year... Where do we place 2023 in terms of what happened in art? I think one word would be turbulence. In particular in the art market, I think auction houses in general, I think it was announced today, had, what, 18% decline in sales and... The fairs are freaking and like the galleries are nervous. I've heard, heard a lot and of rumours. we're talking top global, top the global. top, top, top level. I mean, we saw a few years of extreme spending, in particular during the pandemic, and this whole entire idea of um, speculation and where do you put your money when you're dealing with a moment of insecurity. But I think this is definitely the year where everyone cried the blues. And is this this, this 18% decline? Is this a... A sort of a settling down post-pandemic intensity, or is this actually a genuine drop that we're seeing now? I mean, it depends who you speak to. There's obviously a lot of, you know, hopefulness, as there always is, but, I mean, it is a genuine drop, but you never know with the art market because it's so... You know, it has so many fluctuations and it definitely is, you know, responding to global economics. And the moment I've wanted to teach a saying, a T-shirt saying I'm not responsible for global economics, because I think that really applies to people in the art world. OK, so that's what's happening behind closed doors in the private world. Mm-hmm. In terms of big exhibitions, the, the sort of the huge heavyweight hisses in 2023, mm. were, there, were there any enormous things? Huge, huge. I think the biggest has to be the Rothko at the Louis Vuitton Foundation in Paris, which was... A once and it's it's still on for a few more months. A once in the lifetime opportunity to see artworks that even the insurance value normally most museums wouldn't be able to put on. And there's like thirteen to fifteen rooms. I mean everything from Rothko. It was co-curated by Rothko's son. It's exceptional. It's really really beautiful. Personally, for a British audience, the big buster has got to be Philip Guston at the Tate Modern. It had a lot of controversy. It was cancelled in 2020 at the rise of BLM because of certain pictures in particular um, that included hooded figures about the KKK. But I think the exhibition is so well done and reinforcing how Gustin's history is so much intertwined with anti-racism from day one. So that's been incredible. A lot of talk about the Marina Abramovich performances at the Royal Academy too, because I think there's a populist take on that. Personally, I think the most exciting pop art thing happening is Luna Luna, which is re-exhibiting in LA. That's in Los Angeles, isn't mm. it? So explain, tell us a little bit more about Luna Luna. Okay, it's amazing. There was a basically a fun park, a theme park that was created in the 80s in Hamburg that included rides by Basquiat and Herring and Sonia Delauny and David Hockney. And then afterwards, it was just put in crates, stored in Texas, and basically has been revived. So these amazing rides by people like Keith Herring, etc. When now, you mean a ride, I wouldn't know what a Keith Herring um, ride would look like. I mean, there's oh, lots amazing. of quite playful fig- figures, I'd imagine. But, yes. but what do you do on a Keith Herring ride? I mean, they're really classic funfair rides. A merry-go-round, <laughs> you know what I mean? A Ferris wheel, the bumper cars, these kind of things, you know. You know, they're kind of games that you would normally find in quite an old-fashioned, I would imagine. I don't know how I'd feel about being asked to get on a Jean-Michel Basquiet Ferris wheel. I, I mean, mean, they probably won't let you play on it. I don't know, actually. I think it might be just a case of watching things move around. But they are, they, they're beautiful. It's wonderful to have that sense, though, that art can be joyful Mm -hmm. and accessible 
and, and populist, and it doesn't have to be elitist and just about. I know I began with talking about money in the market, <laughs> which I usually don't, but it doesn't have to just be about investment and commodity. We also had the 50th anniversary of Picasso's death, mm. which was celebrated around the world and it did one of those things I wonder whether in 2023 people were asking questions of Picasso as a man Mm -hmm. which perhaps we wouldn't have been asking 10 years ago how much did that influence the way that the death was marked I think that's really interesting I mean it didn't in terms of exhibition amounts there are a huge number of exhibitions and there's also a very large number of Picasso museums internationally Um, I think it's great that we're actually reconsidering him as an individual and actually asking that big question of can you have a separation philosophically between the person and the creativity and their output? Because one of the top 10 giant investments this year was Picasso. People still all want one and everyone loves looking at them, including myself. So I think there's definitely room to reconsider individuals as and, and in relationship to their work. It's always good to put context together. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that knocked us sideways here in the United Kingdom was the uh, British Museum theft problem. And you have to recap it for, for those who haven't been following it massively closely, closely. But the first thing that my reaction was, was if people can nick a load of stuff from the British Museum, what else is sloshing around out there in people's pockets, bags and on the internet? A hundred percent. I mean, it's really shocking. Obviously, the British Museum has always had this, in a similar way, something like the BBC has this amazing heritage and branded concept of Britishness. Trust. Yes, that we trust that it's being taken care of. Like, literally, the curator lives on site, the director of the British Museum, in order to take care of the objects there. And then finding out that, what, 1,500 things are missing, loads of it's been sold as scrap, gold, jewels, like random stuff. And also that means, what does that mean about the structure of the British Museum in terms of who's in charge of those things? How are they being taken care of? So there's been a huge fallout. No one's been blamed fully. There's rumours that it's, I think, Peter Higgs, who was um, one of the heads of the department, and Hartwig Fisher, who was the director, has had to stand down. George Osborne, the former British politician, is actually one of the head of the trustees at the... Um, actually, that might not be his actual position, but anyways, George Osborne said the British Museum. So yes, it's a lot of trauma and scandal. How many? What are other museums around the world doing? I mean, one must just wonder what's happening at the Louvre or happening at the Met or happening, you know, somewhere in Egypt mm-hmm. where they're they're curating or they'll take they're custodians of our history and our past and our identities. I mean, I, I wonder, it made me think that when you and I go to a, to a gallery or a museum, we have to have our bags checked and mm-hmm. we have, you know, everything is a, is security based before they let you step in anywhere near the, the, the precious stuff. I mean, I wonder whether an enormous number of security machines are currently hurriedly being installed in museums across the world. I'm sure they are. I'm sure there's a huge amount of, like, fear among all museums and also funding issues that are based on that, too, where people are like, God, can we afford to make it more secure in a lot of ways? But, yeah, I think I would imagine that the whole museum worlds internationally are quaking. Finally, uh, obituaries. Who did we lose this year? Um, quite a lot of people. Phila de Barlow at the beginning of the year. Last night, noticeably, or yesterday, Popel, formerly known as William Popel, an incredible artist originally from Chicago whose work was all moving everything from performance to text pieces, all based around concepts around racism. He was an incredible artist. Um, Vera Molnar, who was one of the first women to be working with cybernetics and abstraction, she passed away. Yeah, it's been a bumper year for death, sadly. <laughs> 
Ida Applebrog. I mean, quite a few. Robert Irwin, if you're into big, giant American conceptual stuff. Sadly, he passed away as well. But these are all artists, I mean, apart from Popel, who actually wasn't as old as many of these other artists, who've had hugely significant relationship to defining what contemporary art is. Francesca Gavin, thank you so much for that comprehensive yet snappy roundup of what happened in 2023 in the world of art. You're listening to The Briefing. We're live on Monaco Radio. And you're back with the briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Now, the world is gearing up to celebrate New Year in uh, two, three days' time. But could English sparkling wine be the go-to bottle of bubbly that we all pop at midnight? British wine manufacturers have had a record year for grape production and hopes are high that 2023 will be a good vintage. But English bubbles are still relatively unknown compared with the likes of Champagne, Prosecco and Carver. So Monocle's Laura Kramer went to the wine-producing region of Sussex. She met Simon and Tamara Roberts, the brother and sister team at Ridgeview Wine Estate, a family-led business making globally acclaimed English sparkling wine. And Tamara began by telling Laura about the export side of their business. Like anything, it takes time and it also takes, you can't just have one or two producers, there needs to be collaboration um, a little bit like you have wines of France or wines of, you know, south, southern France, etc. You have some government input and some support in terms of their export opportunities, but as as, a lot, as long as produ- as well as producers working together to, to finance some of those that marketing, because it just doesn't happen overnight. Um, and I think it's that consistent collaborative approach which will then eventually lead to, to to more export markets being open to us. It's a cat, you know, people. It's a category people don't understand. They don't really know what to expect. Um, so that education piece which we've been doing in the UK for years and we still do even we're approaching our 30th anniversary and there is still a lot of education a lot of people have never had an English sparkling wine in England um, and so you know that that's exactly the same that, that will have to happen in other markets as well but hopefully when people then come to England you know when we have inbound people that there's much more marketing around visiting vineyards etc so supportive supporting on both ways if you see what I mean our export and people coming and visiting us over here which would be great. Now what is the connection between Ridgeview and the royal family because it's been served a few times with the royals what's happening there? (laughs) Are you the official English sparkling wine of the royal family? <laughs> they, they, they dare not have that. No, I mean they 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 try obviously not to be have one foot in any particular camp, but they have been very supportive of the category, and I think that's helped enormously. And from you know we we've been fortunate, but I don't wouldn't say fortunate. I think we've made some really damn good wines that have been selected by a body called the Government Hospitality, who select wines on behalf of some of the state banquets, etc. And we've made some great wines which have been selected also, for that. Head of the cellar is he's a big fan of Richie. He likes what we <laughs> do and so that helps. But they, yeah. Some big wine. leaders have had it. Yeah, we've been so Barack Obama was uh was a really cool one, um, President of China. So we've had and obviously some like really key moments for the Queen like a Jubilee and you get you feel very proud. Um, it makes a big difference for export. I mean I think, you know, it really helps with those conversations to talk about the Queen serving your wines, etc. It really I think puts um, you know, that 
confidence and trust into into the wines and the category which i think is really really important because it is those endorsements long term that are going to make the difference i think as well so yeah it's been really really useful the younger generation millennials and gen z are just in general not drinking alcohol as much and they're turning away and i just wondered is the wine industry your industry worried about it is it sensationalized what do you think about this no i think it's i think it's true i mean even in our business you know the youngsters you know gone to the they don't go out on a friday night straight after work if they do have a drink and it's very occasionally it will be something special so you know i think there's still a market for us and it's still a key focus but because now rather than going to their local weather spoons and buying two pound pints they might drink once a month you know, and they're happy to spend that money on a bottle of Vichy. So, and obviously we want to promote responsible drinking anyway, so. Yeah, I think there is that element of people drinking less but better. Perhaps certain parts of the wine industry, there's there's probably a few more nerves than perhaps the quality end, I think. Uh, you'd like to think anyway that, um, you know, people will be looking at, you know, particularly where, you know, how things are made, you know, the responsibility of those businesses behind that, uh, a little bit more interest in where it's coming from, how it's got to the to their table, as it were. And I think that all falls into the favour of our types of producers like ourselves and English wine as a whole. That was Ridgeview's Director of Winemaking, Simon Roberts, and CEO Tamara Roberts in conversation with Laura Kramer. To hear more about the winery, tune in to a brand new episode of Eureka tomorrow at 2200 London time, right here on Monocle Radio. And that's all the time we have for today's briefing. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producer Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and our studio manager Mariella Bevan. The briefing is back at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.